Is Politics Risky Business? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Emily Nacol. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Emily Nacol. Emily is an associate professor of political theory in the Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and in the Graduate Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto. She specializes in the history of early modern political thought and political economy, with a focus on the problems of risk and uncertainty in 17th and 18th century British political and economic writing. Emily, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. It's great to have you on. So we base each of our episodes on a general question and go wherever the conversation answers take us. Our question today is, is politics risky business? And that's sort of a fun way to allow us to explore some of your thoughts and, and work on the concept of risk, really. So I, I figure the best place to start our conversation is to say, of course, a lot of your work indeed does focus on risk and how it's historically viewed and how we should view it today. So firstly, what do you mean by risk? Let's start there. <laughs> that's a great question. Um And I think in the literature around risk, there is some variation about its meaning. Um, I tend to link it, as many scholars do, with a probabilistic approach to thinking about the future, which is by definition uncertain. So we use the tools of probability to think about what might transpire in the future, whether that's a good outcome or a bad outcome. So I think many of us that work on risk or that think about it, even in ordinary language terms, would think about it as connected to the idea of a probabilistic prediction of the future. So so in your work, you're basically dealing with, you know, how people historically have viewed risk and how they've dealt with it politically? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, So my work focuses largely on the 17th and 18th centuries in Britain. And I try to tell a story about how the concept of risk and thinking about risk emerges in this period and in this context. But um, I would be remiss if I didn't say that I think that's not the only story to be told about the history of risk. I think it emerges in different contexts and settings. And there are lots of people um, who are, you know, very happily for me working on these different stories and telling these different accounts of how risk emerges. And so I think there are multiple stories being told right now. Right. And one of the stories and one thing I gleaned from your reading some of your work is that you, you've noted that at times and, and today as well, risk is either sometimes looked at, there seems to be some sort of dichotomy at times that it's either looked at as an exciting opportunity, but on the other hand, it can be also looked at as something to avoid and something to sort of, mm-hmm. you know, shake in fear against kind of thing. So, so I found that dichotomy like very interesting. Yes, that's right. And that is something I would actually add to the account of risk as probabilistic thinking about the future. I think that if you study the way people think about risk over time, or you even look at how we cope with risk today, we're also telling a story about emotional responses to an unknown future. And I think um, that is sort of the dichotomy I trace and that other scholars trace, that the future is a place of uncertainty, but great opportunity, or it's a place that holds danger um, or threat for us. And sometimes both at once. Right. Right. And and can you and I just want to make sure as as well for myself um, uh, and listeners who aren't familiar with work and I don't I don't want to interchange them here. Can can you sort of explain? There seems to be like a slight 
nuanced distinction between risk and, uh, and uncertainty. And I know that there's an interplay between them, but in your, in your work, I noticed you make sure that there's actually sort of a, a difference between the two terms and so on. So can you kind of parse that for me? Like what's when I, if I were to refer to risk, how's that different and related to uncertainty? That's a great question. So I see risk and uncertainty as existing in relationship to each other. And I put them sort of together in a cluster of concepts and lots of folks do. So they are definitely related. I think both of them refer to a future that has not yet happened. Um, Uncertainty. And I think different writers will give different sort of technical definitions of these, but I think of uncertainty as pertaining to a future that is sort of, for lack of a better way of putting it, deeply uncertain, that it's difficult to make predictions about what might lie ahead of us um, or to know what the future might bring. And then I think risk pertains to future outcomes that can be measured using probabilistic tools. So we don't know for certain that these things will happen, but we can hazard a reasonable guess. And so I see sort of the realm of risk as being narrower than the realm of uncertainty, that the future is not a total black box for us. Um, it is you know, a box that we can fill with some educated guesses that may or may not come true. Right. And, and in general, I guess it's safe to say that some risks can be greater than others. Like, as you said, when you get to probabilistic thinking, it's not that every piece of probability, if you will, is the exact same, of course. Right, exactly. And the outcomes themselves that we're predicting are really different. Some are quite desirable, some are not, some are more terrible seeming than others. And and I guess another thing that I noted that you said is that there's, there's, you know, you, you in your work, you challenge the idea that risk and, and the concerns for the future in general, more accurately, is, is purely sort of a c- contemporary concern or phenomena. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, and you, I can kind of tell where that comes from, too. You know, of course, every generation is, and, you know, has its own set of problems. And today people might say maybe it's an election time or whatever. And you might hear that, you know, we have such an uncertain future or more of a risky future, I should say correctly, more correctly. But uh, but but again, you challenge that idea and you say there's actually deep historical roots for understanding, especially in the West, the, the concept of risk. So uh, can, can you parse through that, at least at like at a, at a general level, uh, how, how deep, how far back do some of these roots go? Uh, what, what you're trying to tell people is this isn't just a, a, a new millennium thing, for instance, right? Right. And so I think, Traditionally, or for a very long time, risk was a concept that was really associated with the rise of modernity, however you would mark that out. And so there are lots of books that say this, that it's a feature of the modern world and it's a ubiquitous part of modern or contemporary life. And so we don't think about early moderns or ancients really working through the future using a concept of risk. We say, well, they thought in terms of chance or they thought in terms of fortune or providence. And they certainly cared about the future and tried to predict what was coming and see into the future, but they just wouldn't use the same concepts that we would use. And so I think typically in the West, we associate the rise of risk with the rise of probability. And so that pushes it, I think, further back into the early modern period. Um, But the longer I've worked on it, the earlier I tend to locate it. I mean, I think we find it um, with the rise of maritime trading in Europe, say, you know, 14th century um, in Italian and French um, as People navigated trade on the open seas. They started to think a little bit in terms of risk. So it's very much tied to this maritime concept. And people have acknowledged this for a long time, but not very many people have really delved into that intellectual history or cultural history or economic history to tell that story. But that has changed very much. 
In terms of how far back we go, I know of one scholar who traces it back to sort of ninth ninth century um, Islam and commerce and finds it there. That's the earliest account I've heard of it. Um, But scholars may go further back still, the longer they work on it. But I do think that the main point is exactly the one that you've stated that, you know, we would be wrong to think of this as something that pertains only to us or only to moderns, that this is something that pre-modern people thought in terms of as well. Right. And one one thing that I also just add to kind of connect to that thought is that it's it seemed that, and I guess you said, however you want to you know, put sort of the the point in where we say like more more modern times or whatever that is. But it, it, it seemed like a, especially when some of your work addressed the general time of the fifteenth, sixteenth um, century or fifteenth century. You said that it, it's this uh, this idea uh, that you know uh, fortune and maybe this was also very driven by religious attitudes that the future was was based on fortune and fate and that kind of thing started sl- slowly giving away, uh, you know, to this idea of risk more than more than anything rather that the you know, in other words, that the future wasn't determined by someone's fate or, or fortune or destiny, but but there is a, a discussion or at least starting to be room in the discussion for risk. Um, it, was I correct in my, my assumption in saying that a lot of that probably was driven by the social and cultural norms of the time, especially with the religious aspect in people's lives? That is to say, before they began thinking more, more on risk politically, uh, that, that, you know, that there was sort of like a completely different conception of what the future held based on other kind of social and cultural norms. Yeah, fate is a big one. Providence is another. Um, I think human beings had thought about the future in terms of chance for quite a while. Um, but With the rise of probability, I think um, it's fair to say, if I can draw on sort of broad brushstrokes, I think it's fair to say that people started to think, well, we have, you know, ways of thinking about the future and ways of measuring the future that gives us a little bit more control um, as human beings. And now I think that search for control over the future um, is something that we see all through the history of Western political thought. But I think with the rise of probability and the use of probabilistic instruments and ways of thinking about the future, we see human beings start to think of the future as something that they can measure and exercise a bit more control over. That it's not left in the hands of fate or fortune, but it's something that they can work through, predict, and then take their best chances with. Right. And, and actually, on that exact note, something interesting that I that I read you, you pointing out as well is that it's not just that, for example, this was a social belief or like a, a general attitude that started emerging, but also this starts reflecting itself in political institutions like you, you were talking about as, you know, the concept of risk. People started thinking more in those terms. This is when some of the newest, you know, not not as new today in some ways, but at the time, especially newest economic and political institutions emerged, like people started thinking on insurance markets, maybe even central banking a little while later. So, so that was very interesting to me, too, to connect that general social attitude or outlook that many people may have, but seeing how that reflects in political institutions as well. And I think the two very much grow up at the same time. I mean, I think you can really see how um, if we think about the institution of insurance as it emerges in the early modern period, um, both um mutual aid societies, as well as larger scale maritime and corporate insurance, fire insurance, like as these institutions start to develop and evolve, people start to also develop a new vocabulary for thinking about the future and talking about it. And so I think we see a sort of back and forth between political language and economic language and the rise of these kinds of institutions. 
Right. And actually, on, on the language point, too, I have a, I have a quote here I pulled from some of your work. I just want, I'll, I'll read it here and then we can talk about it real quick. But uh, so, so you noted that in the English language, the first known appearance of the word risk was in 1661 when it was defined according to the Oxford Dictionary as a noun meaning peril, jeopardy, danger, hazard, chance, etc. Now, of course, as you noted that this reflects an early and persistent uh, association between risk and harm or loss. Yeah. But then you also say, but it's also worth noting that this early definition also included chance still. So it wasn't like that all hope was lost, is that people were still toying with this idea that, you know, the probabilistic idea and that, the, as you said, the future is in this uncertain black box. Mm-hmm. One of the scholars that I've learned the most from is Lorraine Destin and her work on probability and insurance. And she traces out this really interesting phenomenon that I think you can see traces of this in my book as well, that you know, at the beginning of thinking about the future in terms of probability and risk, like when this became a way of thinking about the world, you know, both accounts or both narratives were wide open for people, that the future could be a place of harm and danger, or it could be a place where one could seize opportunities for the creation of fortune or the exercise of freedom or some other kind of benefit that people want. And she looks at insurance manuals and she looks at gambling manuals as sort of the two ways of thinking about this. And one thing that she notices is that by the 19th century, the danger and harm narrative has really lapped um, Hmm. the freedom and fortune one that even gambling manuals, um, as we move deeper into the modern period, become books about danger and potential harm. And so there's something about, at least in the European context, this danger or harm narrative that really becomes the emergent story, which I think is very interesting. Um, Right. And actually, I'd like to jump into tracing some uh, thoughts from some other thinkers as well that you noted in in your book uh, at a high level at the very least, just so we can kind of talk a bit about that and how the the kind of comments you just made tie into that. Because um, the book that you wrote on the topic does focus on specific thinkers. Specifically, you had Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, uh, David Hume and Adam Smith. Mm-hmm. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to tour. Uh, obviously, we're not going to read the whole book here together. I always tell our guests, you know, there's a lot, there's lots in these books. And of course, we encourage everybody to check out uh, Emily's work where they can find it. But but at least I think we could provide a bit of a teaser for the kinds of things that you did find with these thinkers. So I'd, li- I'd like to start with actually uh, Thomas Hobbes. Like one of the summary sentences I found that you wrote was that he, you sort of said that he attempts to squash out uncertainty, like in his sort of idea of the way society could range, but admits it, it can't fully be done. Mm-hmm. Can you actually... Un- Pack, feel free to spend some time on that here and, uh, and and let me know what at a high level Thomas Hobbes thought of risk and how you think it integrates into this kind of conversation. So Hobbes is a little bit of a funny thinker in the context of my book um, because he never really uses the language of risk. And so mm. one of but one of the reasons I decided to keep him as part of my story is that I think he is a bit of an agenda setting thinker for Anglophone writers in this period, precisely because he focuses on uncertainty as the central problem that hounds social life and political life. And so if we look at chapter 13 of Leviathan, for instance, um, his very famous chapter on the natural condition or the state of nature, he's not necessarily describing, as I always tell my students, he's not describing the state of war as, you know, just nonstop physical violence, person against person. What he's really describing is a condition of complete uncertainty, Right. That really can never be displaced. And so even if one's body is not harmed under this condition, the psychological torment of living with this kind of uncertainty is for him a condition of being at war. And it is the sole reason he thinks that we would pursue life under a state 
And so in the chapter, I sort of think about drawing on his work with mathematics and science and the scientific method and his views on statecraft and politics to think about how he tries to design a commonwealth that will eliminate the problem of uncertainty from political life altogether. And as I write in the chapter, and as I think many readers of Hobbes would agree, and Hobbes himself, I think, would agree, he fails at this project, that it is really impossible to eliminate uncertainty from political life, um, or that there's always an X factor wherever people are involved. Um, And that persists, right? Because institutions are, of course, made of people, right? And so I think he fails at this project, Um, But to me, that is very poignant that he identifies this as the core problem of political life and the source of psychological suffering for human beings who live together. And he tries to solve it, but he never quite can. Right. And and as you said, like he he himself will probably admit that it can never be be fully done, which I guess that's sort of the idea is that, you know, it's sort of the next best thing, I guess, is is ideal, even though he recognized you're not going to reach that sort of utopia of non-existent uncertainty, which is at zero percent that you could at least get as close as possible. That's a very interesting way to to view his project. I think it's from a different angle, but but still makes a lot of sense. And there's something to it, I think. In his work, we might see something akin to a transition from uncertainty to risk. That he depicts the state of nature as a condition of like profound and deep uncertainty. And then he crafts a state um, in which people live under almost total control of a central authority. And he says, well, you know, you might get a good one or you might not. But even the worst state will be at least something that you can know and study and think about and anticipate. And so I see him as sort of transitioning from a state of uncertainty to a state of risk in a way that he starts to think, well, you know, if you leave the state of nature or a condition of civil war or lawlessness um, or an authority vacuum, and you live under an all powerful state, it may not always be easy, but it's at least more knowable. Right. Right. And, and I guess it's, it's funny because like sometimes, you know, the way you hear Hobbes presented sort of at a high level is often just this idea. And I'm not saying people do this intentionally, but one may get incorrectly get the impression that he's sort of writing a book about, you know, here's power. Here's why it's great. And here's why we should have it kind of thing. Obviously, your your work presents sort of a different angle into this. So I guess in, in your view, in some ways, people sort of get Hobbes wrong if they're not spotlighting some of this idea of risk and uncertainty in his work. Right. I think so. I mean, I think so much of what happens in Leviathan happens and I think lots of pop scholars would agree, happens in the first part of the book where he lays out how we think and how we act and who we are in the absence of political authority and how this can create a condition of profound uncertainty. And then he presents the alternative in the rest of the book and really tries to work out the details in a geometric proof about sound political power um, that can never be destroyed and that will never crumble. Um, But even he knows that institutions are not necessarily built to last, right? So I think that his own sort of self-awareness kind of haunts the project in a way that I find incredibly interesting. Right. That is very interesting. I'm going to move us along to uh, John Locke, actually. So like, you know, what I got out of what you were saying about him is that, you know, he's comfortable with, with the idea there's risk and uncertainty in society, but notes for him specifically that political trust is important and a strong state and a strong, you know, set of citizens' rights is important in dealing with this. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's right. So I think that 
Similarly, Locke thinks of, and he says this in the Second Treatise of Government, that you know the world of politics and the world of human life is constantly changing. It's constantly in flux, right? And so, you know, we will not always be certain about what is to come or what we're living through. But he constructs a completely different system for coping with these conditions. Um, one based, I think, on careful probabilistic judgment, um, and. I think quite a few Locke scholars um, correctly emphasize judgment as the cornerstone of his political theory. And in my chapter on Locke, I think a little bit about fiduciary trust as the kind of institution that links together political authority and the people. And I think about sort of the countervailing powers he gives the state and people, and both must use their judgment. And they exist in a sort of uneasy balance, I think, for him a lot of the time. The state has to often use its judgment, particularly the executive, to exercise prerogative under states of emergency or catastrophe. And the state must act quickly and use judgment and take a risk, if you will. And likewise, the people have to always be observing and watching the state to make sure that their freedoms and liberties remain intact, and they have to use their judgment to decide um, when authority has gone too far. Right. And I actually have a couple follow-ups to that, and I wanted to move us on to David Hume as well. But before we do, it's, it's a little early yet, but I still think I'm going to place our break right here, so, so we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Emily Nacal today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Rosa Payarello, Sabine Elchidiak, and Scott Shield. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Emily Nacal today. So, Emily, I think the the uh, first half of our chat was great. Um, we, we just talked about what you mean by the concept of risk. We talked about uncertainty. We also started a little bit of a historical tour of the origins of this I, I, idea, at least the way people recognize it in the modern sense, and talked about some thinkers. Um, I was just about to move us on to David Hume, so I, I, I guess we'll do that now. So, um, at a high level, what can you share with us about the way you know David Hume thinks about risk? Uh, it seems like he also has a lot to say about how uh, it applies in commercial society and sort of the psychological effect it has on people. So, so why don't you tour us through that a little bit? So I think of Hume as sort of um, the most core thinker to the study, uh, which is interesting because in the original draft of the book, he was not there um, and he was sort of the missing person. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, readers all said to me, oh, there needs to be a chapter on Hume. And so I started thinking and working through his ideas and then realized not only that they were right, but that he was probably the most pivotal, the Hume chapter, I think, is maybe the most pivotal chapter of the book. And I think it's because in Hume's treatise, we get such a rich account of probabilistic thinking and its psychological effects on human beings. And so we get like a really clear picture of what it's like to think probabilistically. And, you know, not all of his analysis has held up over time, but I do think that the moral psychology of thinking probabilistically that he presents is still really resonant. And so Hume, I think, gives us a really detailed and rich account of what it's like to think about the future. And he concludes um, 
if I can refer back to something we talked about in the first half of our conversation, he concludes that even when we anticipate a, a glorious future with outcomes that we really want and desire, just the act of thinking about the future is distressing for us uh, because we don't really know what lies ahead. So even if we're pretty sure that something good awaits us, even thinking about it makes us uncomfortable, he says. And so I think he envisions a world of social and political and commercial actors um, who are a bit uncomfortable when they think about the future. And this discomfort often drives their planning and thinking. And so that is really, I think, in many ways, the emphasis of the chapter. And then I look a little bit um, at some of his economic and commercial writing um, and his essay writing as a way of thinking through how human beings attempt to cope with risk and the future in their economic lives and the kinds of techniques they use, the kinds of you know, bookkeeping that they do, um, the way they think about how many ships to send out on trade, how they think about the balance of trade between countries as, as sort of a place where they can work out their own security as deeply as possible. Right. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's very interesting because I, I would say that, um, like, especially when you like think, start thinking about into commercial society, um, that like, you know, it's not just a matter of accounting for the day-to-day practices. It's also about, as you said, like the idea of mitigating risk, managing risk, mm-hmm. foreseeing risk. So that's actually very interesting too. When you, when you look at commercial, even like the commercial side of things from that perspective too. Right. right. And he really thinks about it. I think at the individual and the institutional level, like he thinks about how ordinary human beings feel some discomfort when they think about the future, even if they think it's a bright future. Um, And then he thinks about how difficult it is and even borderline heroic it is for us to act in the face of risk and uncertainty, right? That we have to get on with life, even though we don't entirely know what lies ahead of us. And I think he gives us a really sensitive account of human psychology um, in the face of an unknown future. But then at the same time, he also thinks about institutions like states and how, um, how they craft policy and make decisions um, for the collective, right? And, right. And so we see him thinking through how policies mitigate risk more or less effectively, how short-term thinking about the future often leaves us a bit hamstrung down the line, um, if you will, so that our, our nervousness about the risks of the future sometimes makes us short-term thinkers instead of long-term planners who are willing to cope with some bumps in the road to get to where we need to be. And so I think he thinks through uh, really the psychological aspects of coping with risk at both the personal and an institutional level. Right. And I suppose even on the personal level, it's interesting to note that people coming from different levels of privilege or positions in society might have shorter and longer time preferences uh, based on that. So you get the idea, like, you know, as, as Hume notes, that the idea of uncertainty and, and even the risky business of all that um, is taxing on people, as he would say. But I guess like, you know, that varies widely depending on, you know, how people what people are trying to achieve, number one, and, and where they're also coming from. So, so that's interesting too. that variance, I guess, in a society as well. That's exactly right. And I think... I think Smith is even the thinker who picks up that nuance even more greatly when he thinks about sort of the social positions that different people occupy and how this colors um, the way we think about not only our lives in the present, but our lives in the future. 
Right. And Isaac, that's perfect. Let's just keep going with that. Cause I was about to say, let, let's move right on into Smith. So uh, you, you started there, let's continue it. So what else can Smith at a high level sort of, uh, you know, introduce us to when it comes to thinking about risk? Well, I think much like his friend Hume, right. We get a really rich portrayal of um, human psychology and moral psychology um, in the theory of moral sentiments, but my chapter focuses, I think, a bit more greatly on the wealth of nations because that's where we find Smith's critique of mercantilism, and I think a great deal of his critique of mercantilism, in a way that echoes what his friend Hume had thought through before him, hinges on this idea that human beings are not very good about risk, right? And I think. In Smith, we once again get a sort of a micro level analysis of risk, like he thinks through what kinds of people will be the ones who take on the riskiest professions. And he says, well, you know, it's mainly the young, right? And he thinks too, right, that most of us have, he says, sort of an overweening belief in our own ability to triumph against terrible odds that you know, we believe that we will be the ones that come out on top in the end. And he thinks about, you know, how might this orientation guide us to different professions, um, you know, who will be the sailor, who will enter the armed services. And he thinks about that through the lens of the psychology of risk. And then also, though, and what interests me even more is that he starts to think, too, about how certain kinds of institutions are structured to offset risk. Um, and in, particularly, in particular, to offset it from one group onto another. And so, I think his analysis of joint stock companies as these early modern corporations is a really interesting study on how decision makers um, try to insulate themselves from risk and shift that burden onto others, right? In a way that I think is familiar I think, to students of contemporary political economy as well. Like some of what he says in The Wealth of Nations about how corporations are structured and how these structures insulate people who are making decisions from the consequences of those decisions. We see these critiques today as well. Right. And then that does make a lot of sense, right? Because what is, especially in today's context, if a corp at its basic level, a corporation is a little limited liability entity, right? So that in and of itself is sort of just a way of mitigating risk, full stop, neutral statement, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if we place him in the context of someone who observed some of the, you know, stock bubbles of the 1720s and was still kind of thinking and writing about them in hindsight and then thinking about them for the future and then also thinking about their operations in a colonial context where they were acting not only as you know merchant companies but also as makeshift governors of other parts of the world we see a really like rich portrayal of how these joint stock companies coped with risk and he's quite hard on them right absolutely yeah and and one one thing that I found very interesting is that of course with Smith, especially in his work in the theory of moral sentiments, but also in Wealth of Nations, is that he of course is always interested in the tension and the balance in many cases, right? So like I think you know when he gets into the ideas that you know how, how you balance the impulse of either having like a risk loving side versus like you know the one that shies away from the risk, you know that kind of dictates whether or not you're going to be dealing with risk in either like a productive way or a dangerous way. So I think that the results that he always focuses on, whether it's at like a a personal social level or at that sort of more societal level with business and so on. That's very interesting to me is the tension he focuses on. Very much so. And I think for him too, you know, 
an extreme approach in the wrong context, either extreme approach, being too risk-loving or too risk-averse, can lead to bad outcomes or to perverse outcomes in the end. And then I think once he thinks about how people then sort of redistribute the the harmful outcomes of these decisions, then his analysis ramps up even further to think about sort of really the broad consequences of taking the wrong approach to the future. Right. And and actually, now that we were sort of leaving our tour of these thinkers, I'm going to switch gears here and get us into sort of slowly towards maybe some more uh, contemporary discussions as well. But but before we get into that, just to set the stage on this part of our conversation a little bit, one thing I noted, and I, I believe it was at the conclusion of your book, um, one statement you made was that, you know, either way you think on risk, maybe you have a risk loving side or maybe it's you're more risk averse. You sort of made the point that if if we as either individually or as political thinkers thinking on broader issues have an ambivalence toward risk, that would be the worst thing. And, and I thought that was very interesting. And I want to know if you, you could elaborate on that a little bit. You know, I think we do have that ambivalence towards risk or maybe an ambivalence towards the future, you know, as a place, I think we hold both thoughts simultaneously always. When I started Mm. thinking through um, the outline for this book and started exploring my sources, I thought, oh, I'm going to tell this story about how once we were very afraid of the future and then something shifted and we began to see the future as a place of opportunity. And so I thought I was going to tell a story in which one narrative sort of gives way to another over time. And that turned out not to be the story at all. I think those two accounts of the future as a place of harm or a place of fortune and pleasure are always tied up together. And so I think we end up living with this sort of weird ambivalence about the future, um, even when we have very, I think, precise probabilistic tools that help us calculate possible outcomes, that when we set about interpreting um, our chances that a certain ambivalence rises up in us or a certain discomfort. I mean, I do think that Hume was right about that and that that this is part of being human, like a certain discomfort with the future is something that we have to live with. Even if we have a more precise idea about what might lie ahead for us. Right. And and there, and there is, and you know, as we were sort of saying at the beginning of our conversation, every generation or so or couple or few or whatever will have its own sort of, um, you know, ways of looking at risk and also things that they think are risky and, and different, you know, levels of probability they're going to weigh in about the future. But one thing that I think is at least interesting, and you could tell me if you agree, is that I find myself thinking, especially in the context of our conversation, as it's framing the idea of risk, that um, in a way, there's some sort of uh, a, a trick that we can play on ourselves when it comes to being ambivalent about risk, especially with today, we live in such an especially in the West and in places like Canada and and many places in the United States, you know, we're living with like, you know, unprecedented amounts of of social wealth. Most people are, and, and, you know, and, and, and material comfort (laughs) that that sphere of our lives can sort of make you go, eh, you know, like you said, bit of an ambivalence about the future sort of insulate you from the fact that there are still a lot of things to think about (laughs) as far as even an individual future and a a social future. And this is, I think something that social historians of the 18th century thought too. And they said, you know, when Hume, by the time Hume and Smith are writing, you know, we're coming off a period of like war and violence where people are sort of dropping dead, you know, from various diseases and famines and things are sort of slowing down. Right. Um, in Great Britain, and that this actually created more time for people to develop a certain ambivalence about the future because they were living a bit longer, um, their lives, as 
as a whole or as a group were a bit more comfortable and a bit less perilous than they had been in the previous century. And that this actually created something of an opening for them to have time to contemplate the future and think about it and to develop this kind of ambivalence in the face of you know, both uncertainty in the future, as well as probabilistic outcomes that they could sort of get a grip on. And so there does seem to be some sort of link between relative comfort and this ambivalence, or at least that's what some social historians of the 18th century seem to think, which I think gives some credence to the comment that you just made. Right. And and tying, tying another thought into that as well, like whether it's um, in, in the private sphere, let's say through a group of people or on the individual individual level or in the public sphere and and in politics as well, it seems that there's always, of course, a question that presents another sort of tension, which is, you know, how, how that risk can be managed. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that one of the sort of, I guess, spectrums or paradigms that you can think about this on is whether or not that risk is managed in sort of like a, a more central way or a more decentralized way. And in other words, are there less decision makers and a more concentrated set of decision makers or is there are are we all kind of you know risk managers in our own lives and, and things like that and uh, and and that to me is very interesting as well because un- underneath a lot of political issues or whatever else the case may be I think that's a that's a key question that's sort of always um, implicit in a lot of what we discuss but not necessarily brought to the surface even though it's it's always in tow at least that's what it seems like to me also a sort of persistent friction that runs through thinking about risk and risk management. So, you know, one place that I see this is in the rise of insurance in Britain in this period. So there are sort of, you know, if I can be a bit crude about it, there are sort of two models, you know, sort of larger scale institutions that are developing for coping with like marine risk and things like that. And then these smaller societies of individuals who are bound maybe by geographic community or profession who start to come together and build their own solutions to an uncertain future. Um, So that's where we see sort of the emergence of friendly societies and people all paying in such that, you know, if something befalls you, the group pays out to you and helps you cope with things that might happen to you down the line that will, you know, bankrupt or harm you and your family. And so we see these sorts of small-scale solidaristic groups come together within what we might call civil society to solve the problem of risk. We see large-scale institutions um, also develop during this period, and they have certain links and ties with the state, which also does a certain amount of management of risk for the people who live under its auspices. And so I think there's always a, a a tension of scale, if you will, like, are we on our own? Are, you know, do we all manage our own risk? Do we manage it best in solidarity with smaller groups of known people? Should we rely on institutions? I think these questions really persist. Um, I think linked to them is also the question of expertise when it comes to risk management, you know, and this is something that I, I, drawn a bit in my lock chapter, but I think it's something that all of us think about all the time, which is, you know, whom should I trust when it comes to thinking about the future, right? Should I, should we rely on experts? Um, Should knowledge be produced more democratically when it comes to thinking about the future? How do we do this? And I think these are ongoing frictions and struggles. And I think how we navigate them ends up, you know, really being sort of make or break a lot of the time for us. 
Right. And, and not only do these questions persist, but I also think what's very interesting, and, and you tell me if you disagree, but like I think that there's also a bit more of a danger when um, a lot of our political thinking sort of gets bundled up, if you will, with certain figures or people as as the guy or, or, or the girl, for instance, that's going to solve all the problems or this party or that party kind of thing that we sort of lose sight of the idea of, you know, on an issue per issue basis, whether it's proper that, you know, a certain issue is handled in such and such a way, like climate change, for example, or, or someone's personal health care or insurance is handled in such and such a way. I, I think that, um, in other words, the idea of bundling all the different questions of risk into one sort of pile as who's going to handle this is sort of also ob- obscures a bit of the discussion that we're really talking about lots of different kinds of issues that have their own levels of nuance as well. Right. And I think, you know, there is reason to think that, you know, we might turn towards a bit more of a division of labor um, when it comes to thinking about how to manage risks. And I think really at bottom, what we're thinking about is the question of, you know, where does knowledge come from? And, you know, who are, who creates knowledge? How do we know if knowledge that is produced is reliable? So often this becomes like a conversation about the reliability of the knowledge producers themselves. And so it really becomes a question, I think, of which authorities we decide to trust um, and on what basis and you know how well we follow their guidelines, whether we do this alone or together. I mean, I think these are really ongoing questions that... I don't see being solved anytime soon, but I think there are things that we have to confront and think about as we move into our future and whatever it holds. Right. And you hit on that that word trust. And, and I had in mind to ask you today, though, you know, some are, are working on uh, topics and are working on a lot of thinking on social trust. And, um, and they've observed that, you know, it's clear that, you know, in some areas, particular in the United States, for example, like um, social trust, relatively speaking, is at one of its lower points. Yeah. And and I was in, in our context of our conversation risk today. Do, do you think that lower levels of trust sort of heighten the sense of uncertainty that people feel in many of areas of their life mm-hmm. because they feel like they can't trust anyone so that those are managing the risks sort of on their behalf, whether it's their boss in a social dynamic or an elected politician? those managing the risks aren't actually looking out for their best interest. I think we can kind of connect this idea of social trust, in other words, with the sort of idea of are are people trusting those managing the risk or at least in charge of it to some degree. There's a degree to which I think risk and trust are two sides of the same coin. Like, I think that, you know, as we face, you know, alone or together a future that doesn't exist yet, you know, one way that we can muddle through is through the connections that we build through social trust and social solidarity or trust in government or trust in expertise, right? This is that trust is something that we can use to sort of mitigate our anxiety about the future. And it's something that can help us, right? As we move forward, on the other hand, trust itself is a very risk-laden practice, right? Um, When you trust someone, you don't know everything about them. You cannot predict what they will do. And so you have to take something of a leap of faith, right? Um, Whether it's in, you know, your neighbors or your community or elected officials, or, you know, the head of the CDC in the case of the U.S. right now, um, that placing trust in others as a way of sort of moving forward itself is a risky enterprise. And so I just, I don't think the two can really be prized apart in any way that, you know, to live in a trusting environment is to take a certain risk. And likewise, you know, one of the ways we have to cope with risk and uncertainty is trust. 
Right. You know, that's a really interesting point. And I guess another interesting thing that I sort of picked up on as you were saying that as well is that, you know, even before you get to the discussion of like, you know, uh, does one feel that a certain elected official or whatever the case may be, are, are they managing risk correctly? And can we trust them as an expert like that? That's one thing. But you sort of touched on another note, too, which even before you get to that question, there's sort of the discussion about weighing risk and probability as to who are the people that we are trusting with these things too. And that's a level of risk as well to discuss. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, you know, when we take the decision to trust another, you know, we are undertaking a certain amount of risk, right? Because we don't know what they will do. I, to me, one of the great thinkers on this question is Annette Beyer, um, who is also a great interpreter of Hume. And she really thinks this through very carefully and, and suggests that, you know, to trust in another person is to invite risk in your life, into your life. And so it does end up being a bit circular in the end, right? One of the ways to cope with risk is to trust another, to walk through it with you. But that too is a risky enterprise. Right. And I, and I have, do have one final question, then, then we'll move ahead to our, to our formal wrap up. So I, I thought it'd be interesting to end with this. And that is to say that at the end of your book, you actually note that M- Michel Foucault talked about uh, danger and persistent crisis sort of being, you know, is, is what constitutes the liberalism and the liberal project, if you will. That's how he characterized it. And, and you don't seem to, to fully, fully agree with that sort of characterization. So I, I was going to ask you to actually, because I think this would be very interesting here to first sort of um, elaborate a little bit on what his characterization is and then talk a bit about your thoughts on it. Cause I thought that that was very interesting at the end of the book. And it'd be interesting to have you talk about that here. Yeah, so there's a way in which Foucault sort of haunts all of my projects. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I don't know if it's because I read him as an undergraduate and that was incredibly formative for me, but I always find myself sort of turning back to him, um, as a way of thinking about early moderns, as a way of thinking about, um, political practice and political relationships. So I sort of turned back to him at the end of this book and thought of, you know, the four thinkers of my book, I think for better or worse and with more or less accuracy are often affiliated or associated with a liberal tradition, right, of thinking. And I thought, well, you know, what if we think about liberalism as as an ideology or as an approach for thinking about sort of perpetual crisis as the future of, as a place of, you know, potential danger or harm. How does that shape um, the ways in which institutions are created? But for me, even more so, the question is, you know, how does that lend itself to a way of thinking about political subjectivity? So who is the political subject in this story I'm telling Um who are they? How do they approach the future? What tools do they have in their arsenal or in their toolkit for coping um, with what lies ahead? And so I think in a way, Foucault helped me sort of think about these questions. Um, and I find that I still think of, I think about him often still as I've moved on to other projects. Um, I find that his work on biopolitics and security um, have also helped me think about how. Um, individuals or human beings are shaped, right, by this confrontation with the future, which I think he thinks about too. So he's not, I think, central to my story and that I'm really, really interested more in what these 17th and 18th century century thinkers um, who are often characterized as liberals, what they think about when they think about who we are and how we cope with risk. Um, But I do think that the sorts of questions that Foucault asks about governmentality 
and power and human agency, um, that those do sort of color my ways of thinking about these thinkers and how they helped right. build a certain tradition, whether they knew it or not. Right. Well, that's very interesting. And it's about that time. So I'm going to move us ahead to our formal wrap up now. Um, we've, we've talked about a lot, Emily, and I really enjoyed the chat. So I, f- I figure it's time to bring the conversation full circle. And what I want to do is see if we can put a finer point on our exploration of the question. Ultimately, in each episode, I want to make sure the guest has the last word. So let me officially ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on what risk is and how we should think of it when it comes to our thinking on political issues? In other words, if you want to leave someone with one or two or just a few things, if anything, from this conversation, what would you want to leave them with? Thanks for the invitation to think about that. Um, So I would say that one thing I would like for people to think about is what we mean when we use the word risk. Um, The anthropologist Mary Douglas has said that even as our ways of thinking and calculating about the future become more and more precise, our use of the word risk becomes looser and looser, such that we might as well just mean, we might as well just say danger when we use the word risk, because that's what we really mean. And so I think one takeaway that I would like people um, to keep in mind is that, is the connection between risk and probability, right? And that thinking about the future in terms of risk is relying on probabilistic knowledge, right? And so one thing I really want to emphasize is that, and I often get in trouble when I say this, is that risks are not real, right? That they are really a matter of thought, right? And so Mm. that risks are a matter of knowledge and down the line, they may become very real dangers that harm us in very material ways, but that when we think about the future in terms of risk, what we're really doing is producing knowledge on our own or with others, right? And so I think that is a really important point. Um, I also think the ambivalence that we discussed is another important takeaway point, right? That that we have really mixed feelings about the future and that these color our efforts to interpret probabilities about the future. So one big take home from my book and something that I think about all the time is that we're not terribly good risk calculators or risk interpreters. And that an exploration of human psychology as a way of thinking about why that might be. Why are we not so good when it comes to thinking about the future? Um, what does thinking about the future stir up in us? And what are the political consequences of not being so good at thinking about the future? Um, because I think they are real and tangible. And so I think for me, those are sort of the two big take-homes. Um, and the third, I think, would be this question of trust. I think that really haunts our politics right now in a lot of places, in many places, I would argue. Um, and I think sometimes thinking about political trust through the lens of risk helps us get a greater handle on what it means to trust in authority, to trust in our neighbors, and to rely on others to help us proceed into the future. Excellent. I, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Emily Nacol, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thank you so much, Alex. I really enjoyed it. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.